and I didn't want to deliver this message. So bless you. Um, we'll see you next week. <laughs> Amos is not an easy, um, an easy thing to talk about uh, in the sense that uh, he doesn't hold out a lot of hope from time to time. And, uh, but nevertheless, we need to talk about it. Uh, one of the ways I think about it is uh, sometimes I think of it as history and somehow I can distance myself from it because it's history. Those were people uh, 2,800 years ago or so. So uh, we, we are modern folks. We are much more uh, progressed and advanced than they are. So clearly God's word was for them and not for us. Not so clear? Not so clear. Okay, uh, so here we go. Bear with me. First, a story. As you know, most of you know, I completed my um, undergraduate studies at Oklahoma Baptist University. I shouldn't put my hand in front of my mouth when I'm talking. At Oklahoma Baptist University, where I did not take a speech course, um, where I received there what I consider to have been a very fine Christian liberal arts education. And during the years I attended OBU in the early 1970s, it was an annual tradition for the Baptist Student Union to put on what was called, at the time, Christian Focus Week. Uh, and, and during Christmas Fo- Christian Focus Week, we would have special speakers come, and they would do special chapels, and there would be lectures and talkback sessions and prayer meetings and stuff. I think it was meant to be a kind of revival for all of the uh, semi-pagan Christians like myself at the time. But, uh, and so publicly I chuckled about it with some of my friends at a, a campus that a Christian university felt like it needed a Christian focus week as if every week wasn't somehow focused on Christ. But privately I really enjoyed these things. And each Christian focus week had a theme. Uh, and I only remember one, which happened to be Jesus, our eternal contemporary. And I I like that phrase, eternal contemporary. It always stuck with me, and it's come vividly to mind these past couple of weeks as I've been working with Amos. For in my experience, um, as we read Scripture and as I've read Scripture over the years, it's not just Jesus who is our eternal contemporary, but Amos and the prophets and all the rest of God's Word recording recorded in the Bible, is eternally contemporary. It is eternal word that's true in every setting. The word of the Lord, written and incarnate, is eternally contemporary. So that's where my title comes from today, Amos, Eternal Contemporary. I totally ripped it off from the Christian Focus Week there, and I have no shame in admitting that. One of the things I... One of the things I learned in my Christian liberal arts education at OBU is that scriptures were written to, for, and about particular people in particular places in particular times. And to interpret scripture properly, one needs to know the historical setting of both the writer and the story the writer told. And knowing these details is sometimes difficult because not everybody's straightforward about it. But Amos is very straightforward about it. He says in the first verse of the first chapter, the words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, 
which he saw concerning Israel in the days of King Uzziah of Judah and the days of King Jeroboam, son of Joash of Israel, two years before or during the two years before the earthquake. Fairly specific time and place. And I think one of the things that's confused us, when I brought maps up this morning from downstairs because I don't know that everybody knows this history. When I went to... I didn't really learn this history and the geography and stuff until I was in college, but um, I hope that you can see this. It's actually pretty graphic. So here's the story, basically, about this, this map. When David became king, he united all the tribes of Israel into one large kingdom. It included Judah all the way up through what was called Israel, so it was all the purple and all the green. That was the united, what's called the united monarchy. That lasted through Solomon. Solomon um, spent so much money, taxed the people so heavily to build his palace and the temples, that after Solomon, the northern kingdom, which was called Israel, broke away from the southern kingdom, which was called Judah. Judah was down here, It was in the high country. It was not in the thick of things. It was less prosperous and and smaller in size than Israel. So there was a king on the throne in Jerusalem. That was Uzziah at this time. There was a king on the throne in Samaria, and that was Jeroboam, son of Joash, at this time. Does that make sense? So So here's what happened. Amos is a shepherd, sheep breeder, tender of sycamore fig trees or something like that from somewhere down south of Bethlehem in a little town called Tekoa. Now, these people up here are in Israel are Amos's cousins, many times removed. They all are children, basically, by and large, of the 12 brothers, sons of Jacob, sons of Israel, right? Am I messing this up? Does this make sense to everybody? Okay. So he's called, the word of the Lord comes to him down here. He's in the southern kingdom, and he's to go up here and preach to his cousins in the north, prophesy to them. That's the setting, right? And in those days, we know that this was taking place in the reign of King Uzziah and King Jeroboam, about 750 B.C., so approximately 2,800 years ago. Ancient history, if only it were ancient history. So that's the geography work. The political setting is something like this. Uh, I just told you about the split in the, in the monarchy so that there's a northern kingdom. Somewhere up here on this map is a kingdom called Assyria. Assyria was a massive kingdom, and they had made a treaty with Israel, an alliance. They'd formed an alliance with Israel. And so this is one of the reasons that Israel was able to expand its, its borders and to hold off the threats from Syria, not Assyria, but Syria and Damascus, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Edomites, the Philistines, and so forth, is because they were allied with this really wealthy and powerful 
kingdom, empire, called Assyria. Unfortunately, at this time, there had been some attacks on Assyria from the north, and they had diverted their armies and their energies up to defending those attacks, which left Israel kind of down here on its own. Some of these people around were trying to get back, gain back some of their territories, and there were alliances being formed and reformed, and Syria, what, well, I'll get into that in a little bit. I'll get into that in a little bit. Um, so that's the historical settings. That all kind of makes sense. I don't, I don't know, a long time ago it took me, a hard, it took me quite a while to figure out that um, there was Israel and there was Judah and all these things happened. But fortunately, someone set me aside and told me that. The setting, but here's, here's my claim again. I want to make this claim that Amos is our eternal contemporary. The particular word of the Lord that Amos proclaimed to the kingdom of Israel 2,800 years ago is yet a timeless, eternal word that we very much need to hear in our contemporary setting. So I'm making the claim that Amos' words are eternal and we need to hear them here. Even though they were uttered 2,800 years ago, we still need to hear them. How can I make that claim? I want, I want to give you some sections from, from Amos and some little bit stories about that he tells, and I want you to listen to them and think if they, make, if they sound at all contemporary, sound at all familiar to us. From the historical records, we know that Amos' time was a time of political intrigue. Syrian political leaders up here in this Damascus area Syrian political leaders, seeking to have a more compliant ally in Israel, conspired with some disgruntled elites inside Israel, seeking to replace Israel's king. They would eventually succeed in deposing Jeroboam and installing Pekah as the new king, a king they could and did exploit for their own political gain. Does it sound remotely familiar or contemporary that Nations are meddling in other nations' political leadership. That's for your consideration. Just think about that. We also know from historical records that it was a time of shifting national alliances. Old alliances were being scorned and broken. New alliances were being formed. Does that sound contemporary at all? You can nod if you think so, (laughs) I don't want to be. I stand up here and I look and I people going. So if you think so, you can you can you can nod, or say amen or hallelujah or whatever. We know from Amos, actually from Amos, the text that it was a time when the elites felt very comfortable in their monopoly of power and in their alliances. He says in in uh, verse chapter six, verse one, that this great phrase that. Those who, he talks about, as for those, alas for those who are at ease in Zion and those who feel secure on Mount Samaria. They felt secure. They were at ease. They were confident. They thought they were in charge or in control. They thought they were blessed by God and their wealth was evidence of that to them and that nothing bad could happen to them because the Lord was on their side. They used the courts to get what they wanted, to oppress the poor, increase their wealth. They felt they were above the law, and 
and that their power and their wealth and their bribes and their religion made them immune to the consequences of their behavior. That's verse six, chapter 6, verse 8. There is a little bit about that, which I'll read to you now. One of the things about these Bibles is they're so... Papers are so thin. The Lord, is, the Lord God has sworn by himself, says the Lord, the God of hosts, I abhor the pride of Jacob and I hate his strongholds. I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. These prideful people, these prideful people thought that they could be immune to the consequences of their behavior. Could that have happened just last week? From Amos, we know that it was a time of opulence and excessive consumption. In chapter 3, verse 15, we learn that the wealthy elite had summer houses and winter houses and houses made of ivory and great houses. In chapter 4, verse 1, we learn that wealthy women in Samaria lounged around all day saying to their husbands, bring something to drink. In chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, we learn of those wealthy who lie on beds of ivory and lounge on their couches, and eat lambs from the flock, and calves from the stall, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp, and like David, improvise on the instruments of music, who drink wine from bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but who are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. They're doing fine, thank you, and they don't care about anyone else. I don't know, does that sound more like a reality TV show or just reality? I don't know. It was a time of injustice. Injustice, as as Amos says, in the gate, which was where the court of law was at at the time. We know from Amos that the extravagances of wealth and the great discrepancies of wealth between the rich and the poor were gained by the unjust oppression of the weak, the poor, the afflicted, and the righteous, or the innocent. We see evidence of this in chapter 2, verse 6. I'll read you several little passages here. Chapter 2, verse 6. Because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, they who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and push the afflicted out of the way Father and son go into the same girl, so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. And in the house of their God, they drink wine bought with the fines that they imposed on the poor and oppressed. That's verse 2. That's that's chapter 2, verse 6. There's a few other places in here, and maybe we'll get to some of them. Let's just flip around. You can, by the way, these are in the, you have a pew Bible if you want to flip with me. Chapter, uh, they do not know how to do right, says the Lord. They who store up violence and robbery. They got their gain by violence and robbery. Chapter 4, verse, I mean chapter 5, 11 forward. Therefore, because you trample on the poor and take from them levies of grain, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you will not live in them. You've planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great your sins are. 
You who afflicted the righteous, who take a bribe and push the needy out of the way at the gate. I could go on and on in Amos, but continuously he's talking about the way the wealthy gained their wealth, in many cases, by mistreating the poor. It could be a headline from last week's newspaper. In fact, I saw an article in the Chronicle, I think it was this last week, that the, uh, the income gains of the wealthiest 10% have gone up 2% just in the last week. So things are happening that are creating this gap between the wealthy and the poor. We learn it was a time of sexual debauchery, even a time of sexual assault when, when poor women were sold for a pair of sandals into slavery, poor girls in one thing and another. The man, a father and the son went into the same girl. Some people say that's a, in the translation, say that's a temple prostitute. Other people say it's a slave girl. Other people just translate it girl. But anyway, that could be last week's headlines as well, it seems to me. According to Amos, it was a time when the people of Israel did not pay attention to God's warnings, which came in the form of natural disasters. Chapter 4, verses 6 through 11. I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and a lack of bread in all your places, yet you did not return to me. Cleanness of teeth. They didn't have anything to eat, so their teeth were clean, right? It was a famine. I also withheld the rain from you when there were still three months to the harvest. I would send rain on one city and send no rain on another, yet you did not return to me. I struck you with blight and mildew. I laid waste your gardens and your vineyards. The locusts devoured your fig trees and your olive trees, yet you did not return to me. I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. I killed your young men with a sword. I carried away your horses, and I made the stench of your camp go up in your nostrils, yet you did not return to me. They did not pay attention to the signs God was giving them, These sound like California fires and Carolina floods to me, potentially. I get nervous about saying that kind of stuff, but at the same time, it could be today's headlines. Instead of paying attention, instead of obeying the laws of the Lord to care for the poor, instead of seeking the Lord, instead of seeking good, we learn that it was a time of false, hypocritical worship which the elites loved to perform, they loved to play church. Back in chapter 2, verse 8, they lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. One of the things about that is garments were taken in pledge for poor people, had nothing else to secure their loan with, and so they would give them their garments, which were basically blankets. And the Hebrew law insisted the law of God insisted that people return these blankets to them at night so they would have something to sleep on. Instead, these people were taking them and lying down beside the altars in the churches with them. Four, four and five. Come to Bethel. This is one, I'm, I'm sorry that Chris Dooley's not here. This, was the, uh, this is the official verse of Bethel College. Come to Bethel and sin. Come to Bethel and transgress to Gilgal and multiply your transgressions. Bethel was a shrine. Who, main, who named Bethel? Do you remember this? Wasn't this the place where Jacob wrestled with the angel 
and he raised the stones there. That happens to be in Samaria, or in Israel up here, and that's a shrine. They come there and offer, and that's where Amos confronts Amaziah a little bit later. There's another shrine at Gilgal, right over here. Come to Gilgal and multiply your transgressions. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Bring your thank offerings of leavened bread and proclaim freewill offerings. Publish them, for so you love to do, O people of Israel. You love to do those things, but you don't pay attention to me. The last text is 521, and this is the most brutal. I hate, God says, I despise your festivals. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the offerings of well-being of your fatted animals, I will not even look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the melody of your harps, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. The people love to believe in God, but it seems to me they did not believe God. They believe they love to believe in God, but they did not believe God. Can you think of any place this may be happening in our world today? Or maybe any place that it's not happening, more likely. It was a time when those who spoke the truth were abhorred and accused by political and religious leaders of conspiring against the king. In 5.10, we hear they hate the one who reproves on the gate. In the court of law, they hate the one who reproves them or, or calls them out. And they abhor the one who speaks the truth. In 7.10 and following... This is, where, this is the section in which Amos has just proclaimed that Jeroboam is going to die by the sword. And he happens to be at Bethel, and the temple priest at Bethel, or the, or the shrine priest at Bethel, is Amaziah. Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to King Jeroboam of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you. And in the very center of the house of Israel, no less, the land is not able to bear all his words. For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword and Israel must go into exile away from this land. And Amaziah then turned to Amos and said, O prophet, seer, go flee back to the land of Judah. Earn your bread there and prophesy there, but never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary and it is a temple of the kingdom. They did not like Amos speaking the truth to them. And as Amos says in verse 513, it was generally an evil time. I think you can agree with me that in many ways it was a time such as ours. Because in the 2,800 years since the Lord took Amos from his flocks and sycamore trees in Tekoa and sent him to prophesy in Israel, we people have not changed. And because of God's demands for, the just, for justice for the weak, the poor, and the needy have not changed, because God's demands for justice for the weak, poor, and needy have not changed, the word of the Lord which Amos spoke, that timeless, eternal word, is contemporary today. It speaks to us here and now. The word of the Lord speaks to us today in our time as critically 
and as judgmentally as it spoke to Amos or to Israel in the time of Amos. That's my premise today, and I think, I hope that you would agree with me with that. Listen to Amos. This is from chapter 7, verses 7 through 9. Amos has a series of visions. And, and in the first vision, um, he sees... I'm going to actually back up a little bit. This is, it will start at the first of chapter 7. The first thing that God shows Amos is he was forming locusts at the time the latter growth began to sprout. It was the latter growth after the king's mowing, which means that the king took the, the mowing for his prophets uh, the, before you got your mowing. And then the locusts are coming. And when they had finished eating the grass of the land, Amos says, O oh Lord God, forgive, I beg you. How can Jacob stand? He's so small. And the Lord relented concerning this. He says, it shall not be. And this is what the Lord showed me then. The Lord God was calling for a, sh- a shower of fire, and it devoured the great deep and was eating up the land. And then I said, O oh Lord God, please... Please cease, I beg you. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. Jacob being Israel, right? The Lord relented concerning this. This also shall not be. And this is what he showed him. The Lord was standing beside a wall with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. Then the Lord said, see, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will never again pass them by or pass over them. I'm coming through their midst. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste and I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with a sword. Israel's God has just declared he will become Israel's executioner. Why? Because all the structures of Israel's society, its religious structures, its political structures, its legal structures, its economic structures, all those systems which had been created and built with God's plumb line were now judged by God's plumb line to be askew, tilted in favor of the rich and powerful, and tilted against the poor and weak. Because the people did not obey God's command to hate evil and love good, to establish justice in the gate, God decided that such an out-of-plumb society must be like a leaning wall, completely torn down. So the outcome for Israel, for the kingdom of Israel, as Amos prophesied, was utter destruction. The political and religious elite and the rich who robbed the poor refused to listen to Amos. They refused to change. They refused to even believe they needed to change. Assyria, back up here, gradually regained its power, its formidable power. And under Tiglath-Pileser, or Pileser, in 722 B.C., approximately 25 years after Amos prophesied, Assyrian armies invaded and completely destroyed Israel. As was their practice, the Assyrians put hooks in the noses of the survivors 
and took them off into captivity, both rich and poor, and eventually scattered them into obscurity. I think they became the twelve, the lost tribes of Israel, and they disappeared from history. For Israel, it was too late. But for us, if this word of the Lord delivered through Amos is eternally contemporary, what does it say to us? I believe the Lord has set a plumb line in our midst. Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors in many and various ways by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the worlds. He is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being, and he sustains all things by his powerful word. When he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as his name has been inherited is more excellent than theirs. That Jesus, that Son of God, is our plumb line, I think. And it's similar. It is very similar. Jesus is our our eternal contemporary is God's plumb line set in our midst. Jesus is eternally contemporary, incarnate word of God. Every religious, political, economic, and state structure is judged plumb or askew in comparison to him. And God's timeless, eternal word incarnate in Jesus has not changed. It is the same word that Amos spoke, the same word that Isaiah spoke, the same eternal contemporary word which God has set in our midst as the plumb line. And this is that word. When he came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has appointed me, anointed me, to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, and to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. And then he began to say, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The same eternal, eternally contemporary words. Good news to the poor, release to the captives, freedom to the oppressed, justice and righteousness. The famous words from Amos describe the plumb line that defines the proper worship of God that God requires of us. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. If our worship does not produce justice and righteousness, our worship is askew. Perhaps there's still time, as Amos said, for us to seek the Lord and live, to hate evil and to love good, to establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to us if we return to him as a people. And then a final contemporary thought for your consideration and afterward really I don't know what any of you think about this but it seems to me that Amos is pretty clear that any people or nation considering building any kind of wall 
should carefully discern whether God's plumb line will judge that wall to be plumb or askew, just or unjust, righteous or unrighteous. Pray with me. Lord God of hosts, soften our hearts. Discipline us, all of us, so that we may always hate evil and love good. Establish your justice and your righteousness. Let them flow down like waters, like a mighty river. And be gracious to us in our failures, as we are gracious to those who fail us. We ask these things in the name of the plumb line you have set among us, in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.